0: Hey, everybody. How are you all doing? We are not yet formally started, but we just thought we'd open it up and let you listen to us get ready here a little bit. We've got uh, Shabhindu here, as you see, and and myself and Mark and Areeb. And uh, we're going to start in about five minutes. So I see that it is the top of the hour, and um, we are going to formally get started now. And I'm so excited to be here again with Shubhindu. And I've got Mark with us in Bangladesh, and Arif in Pakistan, and Shubhindu's in in India, and he'll talk a little bit about visiting a friend. And I'm not going to say a whole lot. He he speaks for himself. Um, I will say one thing. Uh, When we were in the questions in the last webinar, a fellow that's a real strong member of our team, the EAT team, named Aaron, made a comment. He said, Shubhinder, your talk today has changed my life. And I don't know if you remember that, um, Shubhinder, but um, (laughs) I've stayed in touch with him. He is doing some forestation work. I still believe that he thinks that your talk had a huge impact on his life. So let's just hope that 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 also happens for one or more of you out there today. And um, Mark or E, why don't you just, Say a couple words before we turn it over to Shiv Hindu, and, and then we're going to let him do his presentation, and we'll we'll ask our own questions. You guys from the audience can ask ask yours. We've got people here. I see from Alberta, from sub-tropical coast of Louisiana, from uh, a peat and sugarcane-based area. Um, I know that we'll have some people from Australia potentially, and New Zealand, really all over the world. So. Uh, Mark, why don't you say a few words, Read, you say a few words, and then we'll let Shavinder get going.
1: Okay, so I think this is going to be awesome for everybody and inspiration as, uh, as always. So looking forward for, for your presentation.
2: Yep, and yep. I think I am the one who was really excited for this one because he's a neighbor, <laughs> second thing is that we had a lot of engagement, a lot of people loving his uh, webinar last time. So I think uh, me and then after me, Wayne was really excited of having him again. And uh, and thank you very much. It's a privilege to have you on again, sir. And we really look forward to your webinar. Thank you. And before
0: he starts, I'm just gonna say one thing, because I'm gonna say it again at the end. He's got a, um, a workshop coming up starting on the 21st, I believe. You might talk about it a little bit, but it's in India. And it's only 1350 U.S. dollars, although I hope it's probably sold out by now. Um, but the reality is I wish I would have known about it about a month ago or would have looked into it more. I might have shown up over there. But here's what I want to do. is We're going to try to convince him and, and make it worth his while to come over here to the state in some place that makes sense. It actually might be my property. I live in a wooded um, dry forest. We talked about that last time. But I have some some very flat um, floodplain areas where there was native vegetation that had been gone forever. And uh, we might try to convince him to come over here and do a workshop at some point. But
2: anyway, all yours. Take it away. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you, Mark. So, hello, everyone. My name is Shubhendu Sharma. I live in Bangalore, India, which is in the south. Ten years ago, I started a company called A-Forest, and as the name suggests, we specialize in afforestation. How we do and uh, where we work, I'm going to share more in my slides. I also want to share, I'll I'll also, uh, dive into a little bit of uh, how the process works. And since the last webinar, I have added a few insights to how soil microbiology works for us, uh, for the forest, for the trees. And that was something very interesting and eye-opening for us. Uh, That's the new knowledge which we have acquired since the last webinar, I would say. We were using it, but we didn't know the science behind it. And uh, because it was so eye-opening for us, I have included those slides. Uh, They may look silly because they're all handmade drawings, but I hope I'll be able to to, to share uh, what we have uh, learned. So I believe now you'll be able to see my screen. And. So I hope you are able to see my screen and picture of.
1: Yep, somebody. we are. We're good seeing good. it very well. Yep, good to go.
2: You're doing. Good. Oh, Great. So he is Dr. Akira Miyawaki, and he's the person whose methodology we use to make all the forests we make. Dr. Akira Miyawaki is a Japanese scientist from Yokohama National University. He's a Professor Emeritus there. In 1974, he made his first forest in the university. And this was something which he shared when I met him in 2008 in India. So I used to work at Toyota that time as an engineer. And Dr. Miyawaki was hired by Toyota to make a forest in our factory because we wanted to become carbon neutral. So he came and gave a presentation and this was the one slide which stayed with me for a very long time. It didn't let me sleep uh, for a few nights because I was never exposed to something like this. I was so moved looking at just the pictures of his work that I wanted to become part of something get involved in this uh, project and was extremely curious about how we are able to convert a barren patch of land into a forest so quickly the difference between these pictures is i don't know that time i remember it was 10 years but later i realized it could have been uh, more or less as well so Within a lifetime, you can see a barren patch of land getting converted into a forest, which looks like as if it's an ancient forest. It has always been there. So I joined his team as a volunteer, and with him, we made a forest in one hectare area of 30,000 trees, and the entire project was broken into 100 small patches of 100 square meters each. And I was in charge of one such 100 square meters patch. This was that patch, how it looked after two years. So we started with small seedlings, and within two years, it becomes as dense and uh, uh, densely packed uh, forest of uh, 42 different species, and so dense that you can't even walk into it. And that is how Dr. Akira Miyawaki define what a forest is he says the place so dense with trees that you just can't walk into it and this was one such example so it was just four meters wide so looking at these results i was extremely excited and during that one and a half two years of seeing the forest grow i also studied the methodology i read a few papers books by uh, Dr. Miyawaki and also I studied other methodologies of afforestation for comparison and also to expand my knowledge and I came to a conclusion that the Miyawaki method of afforestation is the best methodology in the world to convert a barren patch of land into forest I didn't compare it on economy of of the execution or any other uh, harvesting methodology or how we would have a return on investment, how it would benefit us uh, financially because there's so many techniques and all of them uh, suggest whether it's agroforestry, whether it is some other type of uh, forestry, all of them has a very either commercial, economic uh, or ease of execution advantage. Now this would be probably one of the most difficult way to create a forest. It would be one of the most expensive way to create a forest. It would be one of the most exhausting uh, methodology to execute. But the results are are, are uh, much, much better, faster, and uh, uh, there is a greater amount of surety of survival when you execute projects with this methodology. So I took the entire documentation I I made. We I made some step by step manuals of how to make a forest. Went to the backyard of my house and converted it into a forest. So this is how it looked the day we planted and this is how it looked after three years so it would so this has converted into a dense natural forest but we made many mistakes in planting of this forest the tallest tree which you see in this picture is a non-native tree i didn't know the names of uh native trees and and whatever came to me uh whatever was told to me uh that such a such tree is native. I just planted all of them only to realize later that we have to have extremely uh, thorough surveys and authentic knowledge to understand the uh, origin of our uh, species of trees anyway, so I started a company uh, soon after planting the forest in the backyard of my own house and uh, started making these forests Professionally, uh, irrespective of their size. This is a project which is spread over 20 acres of land, and this is a project in somebody's backyard. Thousand square feet, 300 trees. Many of them are fruit trees, so you have fruits right there in your house. So, since then, we have made uh, Around 150 forests, this is an old slide, I have not changed the numbers, but uh, all over the world, in some of the most difficult geographies, like in India, we have made forests in Rajasthan, which is a deserted place. We've also made forests in Iran, which is uh, extremely deserted, and temperature variations are like minus 17 degrees to 50 degrees, and huge winds. So extremely challenging places, but very successfully made forest on them. And this is a prime difference between a forest compared to a tree plantation. So anything which is called forestry today might not be the dense, natural complex forest which ideally should have existed on that particular patch of land. This picture on the left is also a forest according to the books of forestry, according to the forest department of the country wherever this picture was taken. But it's a monoculture plantation. Whereas picture on the right is picture of a Miyawaki forest. And you can see right from the bottom, we are able to fill up the entire vertical space with greenery. So on on, on one unit area, Uh, we are able to have 30 times more green surface area which means it absorbs pollution 30 times better it produces uh, uh, noise absorption 30 times better it might also act as a barrier wind barrier 30 times better some people would say even the carbon sequestration or uh, oxygen generation is also 30 times better Because of this density, a number of birds and small animals feel extremely safe inside these forests. So this attracts huge amount of fauna. For one estimate, it's more than 100 times biodiverse compared to a monoculture, because in monoculture you just have one species of flora and a few species of fauna if they try to hide in it or get some food. But here, the soil microbiology itself has millions of microorganisms and thousands of species of these microorganisms. The process is 100% natural. And comparatively, if these species of trees would have been planted independently, compared to that growth rate, they grow up to 10 times faster. So within two to three years, they end up becoming a forest which Is self sustaining. Now let's learn about how forests grow naturally before we learn about how to grow a natural forest. So nature grows forests by itself. We didn't plant the old growth forests of the world, they evolved with time. And how that evolution would have happened? How that succession would have happened? Well, the story starts with. Earth being extremely hot, and and erupting with erupting volcanoes, which would erupt lava, and this lava will get cooled down, and the ash fallen on that lava cools down to form rocks, and on these rocks, something between, like a symbiosis of fungi and plant, called lichens, lichens starts to grow on this rock slowly penetrating into it converting it into powder and that powder makes soil and in this soil the grasses starts to grow when these grasses die they add biomass to the soil making it thicker and improving the organic content in the soil so in this thick soil the shrubs and small trees will start to grow Eventually, there will be some trees which will start to appear. But they will also be taken over by species of trees which grow slowly, which are more robust, and they can grow under the shade of other trees. And collectively, this community of trees is called the climax forest community. And climax forest community, once it establishes, it will keep on regenerating itself, probably till the next ice age. And this is how a natural forest evolves on our planet. The beauty of these climax forests is that even if they're destroyed, the Earth goes through a succession. It's called secondary succession and regrow these forests within 150 to 200 years. So if you leave the land from, if you deprive it from human intervention, again, first the grasses are gonna grow, then some perennial shrubs, uh, pine trees, like pioneer species of trees, which will be eventually taken over by oak and hickory type of trees, and a forest will reappear. But we don't have even 150 to 200 years to wait and see the succession happening. So what we do is we take the climate forest species of our trees, collect the seeds from the forest floor, grow seedlings of these trees and plant them right on day one. On this slide where you have zero years written, if the climax forest species are planted in close proximity at that time, Within 20 to 25 years, you will have a forest which Earth would have taken 150 years to grow. So we are bypassing a lot of steps and regenerating a natural forest. Now one would say we are playing with nature and and, uh, interfering with the natural succession. But you must also realize that this is secondary succession. It was not supposed to occur. Because we have destroyed our forest, nature has to go through the entire process of secondary succession. So if we can only help the secondary succession to reach its natural conclusion, we are working with the nature rather than against it. And that's how Miyawaki forest, Miyawaki method of afforestation, is one of the way how we can regenerate the natural forest quickly and using the same species which would be the conclusion of natural succession as well so how do we do it we go to the last remains of a natural forest we try to find these areas in every geography we go which have been undisturbed and we see extremely big trees different species compared to what people are planting in that area we identify our trees from their bark, flowers, fruit, collect the seeds from their germinate seedlings out of them, and also develop a database of these trees and divide them in four different layers, shrub layer, subtree layer, tree layer, and canopy layer, so that we can fill up the entire vertical space with greenery. We select the species in a way that we fill up the entire vertical space. On an average, if you go to a natural forest, you will find 900 seeds fallen on the forest floor, which has a potential to grow into a seedling. And out of these 900 seeds, three to five will get a chance to grow into a tree. And this is how it would look like. When you go to a natural forest, there is, the trees grow in close proximity, unlike Uh, monoculture of plantation and also if you look at the floor of this natural forest it's always covered unlike in our plantations where we can see the barren soil the bare earth uh, visible to us and exposed to sunlight in a natural forest the sunlight doesn't reach the ground the earth is always covered with the leaves with some species of uh, vegetation and also the dead wood as you see in the picture the fallen tree the microorganisms living on the biomass of leaves dead wood they together form the soil of a natural forest which is extremely alive so we have to convert our barren land into soil as good as soil of a natural forest so what do we do we dig the soil till depth of one meter and we mix different types of biomasses in it we mix some biomass which can improve the nutrition in the soil mix like in this example it's farmyard manure picture on the left then we mix some biomass which can loosen up the soil which can improve its perforation capacity because we need to improve the ability of soil to let the water seep in and also we have to improve the space inside the soil so that roots can penetrate into that loosen open up space so we use some biomass which is crunchy in nature like paddy husk in this example the picture in the middle and then we have to mix some biomass which can absorb water like a sponge. So your plants, they don't need water, they need moisture. And how to make sure that the soil contains moisture all the time? We mix some biomass which acts as sponge and absorb and keep the moisture intact in the soil. We mix them and if you observe closely, the soil texture, the color, changes altogether but also we have to mix or we have to reintroduce some life in the soil because the trees are totally dependent on the soil microbiology just like we are dependent on the bacteria living in our bodies Similarly, the trees, they live in soil and they're dependent on the bacteria, fungi, microorganisms, nodules, centipedes, millipedes, earthworms, so many different types of life inside the soil for the successful growth of a forest. So we have to bring, reintroduce some soil microbiology in the soil. And what do we do? We have to consider a target that eventually our forest should be able to produce its own humus. This is a screenshot from a video where they have kind of zoomed in to the soil microbiology and you can see an earthworm here moving in the soil and ants, termites, centipedes, millipedes, and a lot of soil microbiology which can only be seen through a microscope but this soil is alive and this should be our target so what we do is we make a compost tea or in india we call it chiv amrit which literally translates to elixir for the plants elixir for the living beings for the small microorganisms so when we make this jeevamrit it's highly concentrated with soil microbiology and we mix it in all the materials we are going to mix in the soil so the materials absorb the soil microbiology and because they are mixed with the soil uh, the the life comes back to the soil we also sprinkle it on the surface of the area where we are planting so what is jeevamrit and how do we make it how does it work so he's an indian uh, scientist subhash palekar and he has some and he's an agriculturist he studied bachelor of science in agriculture in the university where he was taught about how industrial farming works and the chemical farming the urea the pesticide the insecticides But he was curious, he always compared the agricultural practices with forestry and with with the natural forest. And his observations were that even during the time of drought, if you go to a natural forest, you will have the sweetest fruits growing on the trees effortlessly. And he always wondered who would provide the fertilization to these trees, who would provide the pesticides to these trees how on the earth, a forest is growing, healthy, nutritious produce without any input, and how and why we have to provide so many inputs for industrial agriculture. So he got curious. He went to the forest every week when he was in university and based on his observations, he devised a methodology called zero-budget natural farming, a great area to look into. from zero budget natural farming, we absorbed one of the concepts in our afforestation practice to reintroduce soil microbiology into the soil. So I'll share some of his uh, learnings. The first learning is, and you would have observed it probably if you have been in the field where the cattle grazing happens. If you look at the cow dung or dung of any animal fallen on the ground, if it's dried, when you remove it from the ground, you would see some holes under it. And these holes occur because when the cow dung or the poop of any animal falls on the ground, any mammal falls on the ground, the earthworms inside the soil, living at deeper levels, they move towards the surface of the soil. And on the surface of the soil, the beetles, will get attracted towards this heap of cow dung. So what is happening is, just by having the poop of a mammal, excreta of a mammal, on the soil, on the ground, you are activating the small animals on the surface and under the soil. No fertilizer can do that. When we activate these earthworms, what they do? is they they create these tunnels constantly moving towards the surface digesting the soil eating the soil at the lower ground level lower soil levels and releasing it on the higher levels and those and those who understand soil those who have tested the minerals in soil they will tell you that as you go deeper in the soil the mineral content increases that's why all the mineral mining happens deeper at the deeper level of soil so when the earth forms they move from the deeper levels to the surface they bring the mineral rich soil to the surface thus improving the soil fertility what also happens is that these tunnels are going to open up the soil they're going to loosen up the soil in which the roots can grow easily At the same time, in a natural forest, the nitrogen is provided by the nodules living on the roots of the trees. They trap the nitrogen from the atmosphere, give it to the tree, and tree in exchange gives them some of the sugar it would have produced through photosynthesis. And this exchange happens effortlessly if, it's in a natural forest. On barren lands or in conventional farming practices, we either poison these nodules or we disturb the soil that it doesn't. We don't support the growth of these nodules on the root system, and because of that, we have to externally provide nitrogen to our uh, trees, our plants. However, in nature, it's taken care of by the microbiology living in the soil. And also the fungi living on different trees, food system of different trees, they help the tree to produce a network where the trees can exchange nutrition with other trees, where they can communicate with other trees, and uh, make the forest make as as one single organism. So the forest behaves as one single organism, even if they are individual trees on the surface, they're all connected. They're all part of the same ecosystem. And also the tunnels which these earthworms would have created, they are lined with uh, secretion from the bodies of these earthworms, where these tunnels become semi-permanent and When it rains, all the water is carried through these tunnels to the groundwater level. And because of that, there won't be any water stagnation on the surface or soil erosion from the surface where we lose a lot of topsoil every year. And your streams will flow with crystal clear, clean water. So what do we do? We prepare this uh, concentrated solution of soil microbiology to do that we have to bring soil from a healthy natural forest mix it in the mix we have made we take some cow dung some cow urine if that's not available we take some ripe right native fruits because they also have the same uh like my- microbiology uh, in it and we ferment them in a setup like this which you see in the picture and we will dilute it and then we will use it on our soil. So this is a small video where you can see how we have this solution. And if you observe the soil of this place, it's just like dust, it doesn't have any life in it. And that's why reintroducing life in the soil is so important. So this is a kind of a deserted place. You can see the soil on the the ground near the, and this is how we are reintroducing the microbiology into the soil. And this project was extremely successful. So once we reintroduce the soil microbiology, we plant our seedlings very close to each other, three to five seedlings per square meter. And then we cover the soil with a thick layer of mulch, around six inches thick layer of mulch. It produces the, it protects the soil from exposure to sunlight. So the microbes, they don't get sterilized. They don't die because of heat or direct sun. And also this uh, mulch, it protects the soil from water being evaporated into the atmosphere, so it conserves the water and also saves the soil microbiology. We maintain the moisture by watering our forests. Mulch protects our forests from heat during the summers and the frost formation in winter, it happens only on the mulch. So we will never have a sheet of ice blocking the air for the root zones of our trees the mulch will always break this sheet of ice and let the soil breathe underneath. And because of this soil preparation and the mulching, the roots also grow very fast. Within a year, they form a network, tightly holding the soil together. And on the surface, the leaves fall and uh, they start to produce humus. Uh, this is the stage when the forest becomes self-sustaining because you can imagine so many leaves are falling it's uh, converted and, and the forest floor is always moist uh and dark because of the density of the trees so soil microbiology thrives immediately it converts all this uh fallen leaves into humus which is uh, full of nutrition means that trees receive a lot of nutrition they can conserve their own it, it's, its own water from the air it, the water condenses and uh that's the moisture uh, which these trees use so in the end we have a forest which is as good and healthy as a natural forest picture on the left is the is one year old forest same forest where uh, you saw the video where we were using the soil uh, microbiology and answer. <laughs> excuse me uh, but we never maintain our trees using the conventional uh, landscape or gardening principles. Because if we do, the forest suffers like this. The picture on the right is of the same forest, same area. But here, we have trimmed and pruned the trees. Not we, but the maintenance was done by somebody who didn't know that no management is the best management in a natural forest. And if you use the landscaping or horticulture logic and try to maintain a forest with it, we are going to do more harm than good. So the forest lost its density, it lost a lot of leaf cover, the microbiology was gone, the fauna was gone. And eventually we ended up with a weak forest which was prone to diseases. So we never trim or uh, prune our trees and within two years we end up having a forest which looks as dense and natural as if it would have been there forever the forest keeps growing and within 10 years it starts to look like a hundred year old natural forest so using this technique you can make a forest of 300 trees in parking spaces of six cars and in india we are we can easily make it for cost of an iPhone. <clears throat> this is an example of uh, the most challenging process here. Yeah. so you saw that how land is transformed and these forests can be made anywhere and everywhere it could be a strip of forest it could be a a densely packed area this is the project video you saw just now and you can also observe that even grass isn't growing uh, on the soil so the soil is so barren that even the grass doesn't grow but we are able to grow a dense natural forest using soil microbiology, the things we mixed in soil, selection of the right type of trees. There's a project in Iran, extremely difficult geography, extremely difficult place. We planted the forest. And you see, even in deserted place, as deserted as Iran, we are able to grow this. This is the backyard of a house in uh, northern India. You can see the house on the right side, very tiny. And in the backyard, they have 600 trees, 200 square meters of forest. This is a backyard of a house in Bangalore, the city where I live. This is uh, a public park in Karachi, Pakistan, where uh, Then two years we were able to grow this. Now this was our first forest in Pakistan and uh, it was quite a challenge because you don't that easily find native species of a particular place. But somehow we made it happen and in those two years we were able to have a supply chain of native trees. So the expansion of this project was much better than the pilot which you see on the years. This is in a factory in India. This is again in a factory. Uh, One of our clients, Saint Gobain, the company which makes glass, uh, it's in that factory. This is another project, just 11 months. This is a financial IT company in India where we have made the forest, and uh, they are now doing their meetings inside this uh, forest. They have made a small meeting area so i like we always think about forests as places far away from the city or maybe uh, you know even in a farm or outside the city but i believe that cities are the places where these forests are most required and we should concentrate on cities as well this is on a farm and this farm used to have a lot of wind because of uh, the crops were not growing well so this forest was made as a wind barrier and uh, now they are able to make the farming a little better this is also in a farm come a small workshop this isn't a resort uh, a resort of naturopathy where uh, they treat people using natural medicine and uh, a huge forest I was told that there was a wild cat which has started coming to this forest. We it's thirty-eight acres land. We planted forest in twenty acres. The method which we used to make these forests is uh, open for all. So five years ago, we opened up our entire methodology. Uh, all the documentation was uploaded on the website and like shared on open source. So. People in different places, uh, like Korea, US, India, they are making these forests all by themselves as well. This is one such example in France, in Paris, uh, next to the periphery. And if you compare, I mean, this was our argument when we met the Paris municipality, that the money you spend to maintain a lawn for 10 years, Just for one-fifth of that money, within two years, you can have a self-sustaining forest. It doesn't need any maintenance. So for the cities and the municipal corporation of cities, it's extremely beneficial to plant a forest like this because it's public money, which is used to maintain the greenery in the city. And you can imagine how much more we can do with that money if it's saved by 80% just by converting your lawns into forest. And also we will have 30 times more green surface area because we'll be able to use the vertical space, unlike a lawn which is just one single layer of green. And I think it's extremely important for the people in the United States also to understand how by just converting your lawns into forest, you can stop huge amount of fertilizers being added. To your uh, soil contaminating your soil with these chemical fertilizers and burning a lot of fuel for sake of maintaining and mowing your lawns and how many hours and hours of labor can be saved by converting your lawns into forests so as I was talking how cities are the places where we need forest the most this is picture of uh, sao paulo so most of the cities would have been a forest long long ago because forests are the places where uh, clean air fresh water healthy food medicine it's all available so most of the civilizations of the world evolved either inside a forest or close to a forest and that places would have converted to village, and those village later on became cities and expanded back into the forest. Now, because we have expanded and and densified our cities so much that people have totally uh, lost touch with nature, that somewhere we have to change the approach of how we look our cities and how we landscape them. So I feel why not forescape these cities, why not bring the forest back inside the city and expose people to the habitat which would have been their habitat a few hundred years ago so this is how we are bringing back forest in our cities using the approach of forestscaping by combining art design and forest because we need some human intervention in these forests and human intervention can always is not always negative we have the ability to create, and we can create beautiful artworks which complement the forest, nothing like it. So this is one such example. This is in Lahore, Pakistan, where we have a small patch of land which is designed in a way that it's a utility for human beings. We have a pathway for running, we have stone benches, we have a quiet zone to meditate, we have three nodes, node one, two, and three, where we will install a sculpture and the other walkaways of this forest will be used for just losing yourself inside the forest we call this forest of well-being it's uh, designed in a way that you get totally you can you can totally bathe inside the forest we read the concept of forest bathing, Shinran Yoku. And taking some inspiration from Shinran Yoku, we designed this uh, entire uh, project. So this is how the execution drawing looked like. This is how forest looked like after we planted it. This is how it looked like after eight months. And this is how it looked like after one year. So, this is how we are bringing back our lost forest. Thank you very much for listening. All right. Any questions?
1: Yeah, we have a bunch of questions. That was awesome, by the way. So, thank you. So, much. um, not sure if Wayne is still here. Uh, um,
0: Okay, let me go through. I that. I had muted I I muted myself, Mark. Sorry. Um, okay. That was just outstanding. He always does such a great job. I will say this. Also, if you can't get enough of Subhindu, he's done a TED Talk. He's got on his website a forest. There's lots of other information. And, Mark, why don't you start going, start at the first of them and start going through the questions. That would be real helpful.
1: Okay. So here's... Uh, uh, here's a question from Jaron, uh, okay. So he says, um, okay. Uh, he says you indicated cocoa, peat and and sugarcane, um, uh, sugarcane bagasse um, uh, to be used for water, um, and water retention, what um, what materials yeah. available in, in the United, United States can be uh, used for water retention yeah. uh, in uh, San Antonio, Texas? Guarances? San Antonio, yes. Texas. Yeah.
2: So uh, uh, anything which can absorb moisture is the water retention material. The way we check about this uh, biomass whenever we go to a new geography. What we do is we ask our clients to show us all types of biomasses which are available. So anything which is crunchy becomes perforation material and anything which is soft, you take a handful of that biomass, put it in a bucket of water, remove it, and if you see that it has increased its weight is that it has absorbed some water that's the kind of biomass you want to use if you squeeze it the water will drop in europe we used peat the peat which is sold in bags like for the at the gardening shops uh, peat which is scraped from the natural forest uh, we use that as water uh, retention material sometimes if we don't get any water retention material especially maybe in Texas, that could be the case. We use farmyard manure. You know, the bodies of microorganisms, living beings, are also made up of 90% water, just like our bodies. 75 to 90% water, uh, our bodies are just water. And because they are also made up of water, by improving the soil microbiology, we are also improving its moisture content when the soil is alive when it has a lot of biology in it and you touch it you feel it's cooler than the soil which doesn't have any biology in it it feels soft and it feels moist it sticks to your hand that's all because of the microorganisms living in the soil so what we do is we use manure for nutrition and we also use manure as water retention material we just sometimes double the amount of manure we are using in in our uh, soil. So in Texas, if you don't find anything, you can use horse manure. You can use uh, farmyard manure from a dairy farm and that will do the job.
1: Cool. Awesome, cool. Okay, Um, couple of questions from Alicia. Okay, so she says, is it similar to forever forest in Japan? i'm not sure if you're familiar she has a link but um you know it's
2: not it's not going to open now um, uh, i can see it Yokohama forever forest project land, right you uh, can open that yes it is similar it is exactly the same forest uh under the guidance of dr akira miyabaki yes so this is uh this is one of such projects. So I got exposed to Dr. Miyawaki through one of such uh, forests. So this is for the Yokohama Tire Company. And uh, they are actually one of the suppliers to Toyota. And similarly, Toyota also uses Dr. Miyawaki's help to plant forest in uh, Toyota factory. Yes, so the Forever Forest is the, the one of such examples of Dr. Miyawaki's work in Japan and other places in the world.
0: Real quick is Dr. Miyawaki still alive and do you still communicate with him?
2: Yes he is very much alive and I'm gonna meet him uh, in April. So April I'm going to Japan for a symposium. Me, a lot of uh, people from all over the world who are using Dr. Miyawaki's methodology through our open source, or like fifteen out thirteen out of fifteen people who are coming, thirteen of them got initiated because of either the TED talk or the open source methodology we use. So now his his following has increased uh, since we went open source. And uh, in on tenth of tenth of April, we are uh, going to meet him, give him an update of what we are doing. And the next day, we're going to plant a small forest with him. Yeah. He's 92, by the way, and uh, recently he was not very well. So he was on a wheelchair, but still very active and uh, leading huge projects in Japan. Very cool. Will he get any exposure at the
0: Olympics? Which, you know, what a wonderful something might be able to um, be from that
2: yeah
1: okay All right. so here is another question um, okay here's another question is this related to permaculture
2: you see nature works the same way everywhere in the world so whether it would have started in australia with uh bill mollison or in uh, japan with dr miyawaki they would have concluded the same conclusions that this is the best practice because nature has the same practices and we are just copying it so from an approach point of view if you see uh, permaculture uh, wants to create systems which are self-sustaining natural forests are also self-sustaining a miyawaki forest also becomes self-sustaining however the focus of permaculture would be to Make human life sustained through the plantations which you have done, but at, but but in a forest made using Miyawaki method, the goal is to bring back a lost natural forest for sake of bringing back a lost natural forest. The idea is not to make an harvest out of it and not to have human life dependent on it. Indirectly, yes, we are dependent. But here, Dr. Miyawaki suggests not to think about harvesting. Think only about making a forest of permanence for sake of having a forest. So that is the philosophical difference between permaculture and afforestation by Dr. Miyawaki's approach. He has uh, written a book called The Healing Power of Forests. The book has become very rare now, and I wrote to the publishers uh, two weeks ago. And they told me they they are going to release an e-version of the book very soon. So I hope it it gets released soon and then probably you can give a read to it and also go a little deeper into the philosophy of uh, Dr. Miyawaki. So it's not related to permaculture. However, I think both both complement each other in a way that uh, you have forest for sake of conservation, and then you have permaculture for human sustainability.
1: Awesome, okay, here's a question from Terry. Um, I'm very interested to know about the nature of lichens in a forest. Many of our um, live oak um, that that have died or near dead uh, branches that fall from the tree and covered. Um, in lichens so yeah. is anything known about how lichen uh choose a branch to thrive uh, lichens are fascinating and i would like to learn more about them
2: yes so uh lichen lichen there are many types of lichens in nature some can grow on rocks some can grow on wood some can grow only on dead wood basically it's form of life grows extremely slowly. So what we cannot do is we cannot plant lichens. It chooses the the place where it wants to grow. And you see, if the trees have wood which is extremely densely packed, it's difficult for the termite to penetrate into and it will need an organism like lichen who has the ability to even penetrate into a rock so you can imagine it can easily penetrate into uh, organic wood irrespective of how densely packed it is so the the way lichen would choose a, a, a tree would be whether it can provide them enough uh, minerals and nutrition i would Like this is just out of my imagination. I have not gone into detail study of how lichens behave and how they, the best medium to grow them. But in my observation, I have seen them only on old trees, not right now, like growing, but who have, trees which have developed a surface where even the, the trunk is alive, but the outer covering can be purely dead cells. And the likelihood of lichen growing on these dead cells is a lot more than they're growing on uh, cells which are alive. This is purely from my observation, I could be wrong as well. And uh, I think that would be the criteria for lichen to grow where uh, there is not much activity under the surface wherever they are growing, because if the tree is still in, in that growth phase, it won't be an ideal place for lichens to grow because they grow and expand extremely slowly. And uh, growing surface uh, would be difficult for them to, will will not be the best place for them to grow. So old trees with outer dead wood probably would be uh, ideal condition for lichens to grow. But I also feel that uh, it's not something like plant where we can take a small lichen and start to grow it inside our house or in, in a controlled environment. Uh, they just grow on their own.
1: Yeah. All right. Here's a question from Alicia. Uh, managing urban runoff by creating a forest um, uh, sounds like a good approach. Any thoughts?
2: Mm, what's a what's a runoff? I don't understand. Urban runoff. Alicia. If you can just...
1: Here in
0: the U.S., that's I think a, a U.S. sort of um, dis- description um we get um runoff coming off of rooftops it happens everywhere in the world but then right. it, it ends up going um across roads flooding so on and you know we, we don't have really good means of flood control in many places i think that's what she's referring to
2: okay yeah so especially in the u.s if you see the city of los angeles you get the rainfall but that rainfall just is is directly sent to the ocean in ideal case the rainfall should have gone into the ground and that would have maintained the groundwater level in city of beirut we have seen the same example there are many cities in india where we have seen like the city where i live in bangalore we had more than one thousand lakes in our city ancient lakes man-made lakes now we have only 235 so these lakes used to hold all the rainwater, and we were a water sufficient city we had ample water for for our people but now we have to bring water from 100 kilometers away and because we are on the higher level we have to pump that water to uh, the city of bangalore The mistake what we do make in urban spaces is that we pave everything and there is extremely low amount of water that goes into the soil. So yes, forest can be an approach where we can remove the pavement, plant a forest, let the roots grow deeper into the ground so that they loosen up the soil till the ground water table and all this run water can come to these forests come to that land where we have made these forests and recharge the groundwater table however the forest can have uh, forest only has the limited capacity uh, which is in tandem with the natural rainfall of that particular place so I would suggest to make those areas where you get all the storm water and uh, those drains are directed towards the forest. We have to have these patches of forest spread all across the urban urban spaces and uh, the natural rainfall falls on these forests and also some of the run- runoff uh, goes to these forests. So it has to be well distributed as well but this is probably the best solution to manage urban runoff, because your water will go to the groundwater table and it will be filtered by the root networks, by the soil microbiology, and only kind of potable water will reach the groundwater table, not contaminating.
1: Yeah.
0: For whatever reason, my uh, webcam froze up, that's why I turned it off here. but. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna just ask my one question for me And then there's a whole bunch of others want to get back to it. What can we do to help you? Shavinder? Um okay. what, what you know, we're all over the world here, so um, Just give See, us some thoughts of what we can do to help your Your vision because we just think it's so spectacular, it's so spectacular.
2: Well, thank you so much Wayne and I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up. Uh I am And and as you know that we have these workshops, sometimes we conduct these workshops, train people how to make these forests. One of the things which we have been able to successfully do is transfer the knowledge using which people all over the world are making their own forests. Like I have never been to Australia, but we have a forest maker in Australia. He's doing great work. His name is Brett and if you Google Brettacore, Corp, You will see his company, they are making these beautiful forests. So I have seen that now because we have the internet and the power of uh, social media, we can reach those places where physically we cannot. We have a forest in Cameroon like this. So we have these open source documentation, open source manuals, but I also feel that there is a requirement of making the video manuals of of, of forest making. do it yourself or step-by-step video tutorials how to make a forest. So I actually have started a Kickstarter. I have not launched it yet, but I I would love to share a preview of of that with you. And when what you and the community of uh, EAT can do to help me is is to back this Kickstarter. Uh, financially, and also to share this uh, campaign with as many people as possible. So today is Tuesday. I'm planning to launch it on Tuesday in India, uh, 11th of February. I'm planning to launch it on 13th, uh, 12th night for you, Wednesday night for you. By if we are able to reach our goals we are going to make four video tutorials uh let me post this link in the chat i believe everybody should be able to see it so guys this is uh the preview so please don't share it outside your networks uh now but like this is a preview you can just sneak in and see uh how this campaign is going to be and uh I'm sorry. I mean, I didn't know whether I can plug in my project where I'm raising money for making these videos. But since you ask, I am sharing. I'm raising. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm uh, floating this Kickstarter to make four video tutorials in four different geographies of the world, where we will share how to conduct a survey of a natural forest, how to select the trees, how to make a list of species, how to prepare the soil, how to do the mulching how to maintain the forest, how to monitor the growth. And because we'll be doing in four different places, we will have examples of trees from four different places. And so right now the places are uh, India, uh, Netherlands, Belgium, and Japan. And I'm also targeting if we exceed our goal by 50%, so I've kept a goal of around 22,000 US dollars, if we go up to maybe 32, 33, We'll have enough funds to even uh, uh, make one tutorial in the United States. So I have four different projects lined up, funded, uh, fully funded by someone else. And we are going to go with our equipment and our people, and I'll be going to these places and we'll, you know, in a TED Talk style where we have uh, graphics and we have uh, some video, but I'll be on site. So we'll make these videos, include the graphics, include the documentation. Uh, So we'll have a video and we will have a paper documentation which can, which can actually help you make a forest all by yourself just by following the guidance.
1: So back this project
2: to to help us and use these videos uh, to make your own forest and I think that's the Greatest help you can uh, do because the mission of a forest and uh, we personally is to bring back all the lost natural forests, and this is a mission so big that it cannot be done by just one company or one person or one small team. We need to have everybody involved. We have to have a Arib in Pakistan involved, we have to have a Wayne in the United States involved, we have to have all the listeners to this webinar involved. Their friends, their community, anyone and everyone who lives on on planet Earth has to become part of this project.
0: So, Andrew, that's not a lot of money, folks, overall, especially where our community is almost 30,000 people now. Uh, all it would take is a dollar each, okay? And and obviously a lot of people won't do anything, but boy, $5 um, from any number. But um, so let's you and I keep more, continue to stay in touch on this as as you roll it out. Please, everybody, respect what what he just asked and don't share this outside yet. But let's set a huge goal to to help him reach this goal. And I'm going to think about it a little, but I want to come up with, a number that we're, we'll make almost a pledge for. Maybe we'll even do something to where for every dollar he could raise outside of us, we would match that. I mean, we'll, we'll think this through, and then we'll, we'll kick some butt and get out there. I'm, I'm gesturing with my fist now. I wish my webcam was working, but, um, and, and work on this to get it done. And then also, we might be able to help what we call in-kind some. We've got some very talented video editors and other people that, might
2: be able to help reduce some of your costs as you get, as you
0: get moving for it. Um, awesome. Thank so, you so, much, let to keep that in our mind, everybody, as a
2: goal. Thank you so much. And, uh, I mean, 30,000 people, you are right. I mean, if we can get just one dollar one, $1 a person, uh, we'll be able to reach this goal in no time. And I think we have to, we, it will be more epic if we do it that way. You know, I could have gone to a, A corporate foundation and told them give me thirty thousand dollars i'm gonna make these videos and we will put you as a sponsor but i don't want to do that because it is for the people of the world i think it should get funded from the people of the world and that's the kind of connect because we have to have everybody involved in the making of it it's not that we want you know a gates foundation to uh, take the credit of spreading something like this in 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 the world. We have to keep that credit for ourselves because all of us are are have to be a part of it. So I look at I look Kickstarter and the crowdfunding uh, a much stronger way to engage right from the beginning of the process rather than we doing a favor to the community by giving them a video for free.
0: Super. Mark, why don't you continue to ask some of these questions. How, what's your timing tonight? So you want to be really... Um,
2: I, I have time, so... How I, long? How long? Can 20 minutes. Yeah. 10 to 20
0: okay. more minutes. And, and All right. I think we're getting we're getting there. So, if you guys have got additional questions, you just heard, we're going to stay on about 20 more minutes at the most. Um, there's a bunch of questions I think that he's already answered. Mark's good at interpreting them, and and then there's some that, that you know, will fit. So. Mark, why not you just keep going here? We're gonna okay. help him reach this goal, everybody.
1: All right, um, here are a couple of questions from Alicia. Um, she says, how does the soil food web uh, fit into the forest creation process? And then she said, great to hear about the compost tea. You have answered my question uh, about the soil food web. So uh, any comments from you?
2: yes uh soil food web is something after spending five years in forestation, only then we got exposed to soil food web and uh, uh i think when you have also done a, a webinar with dr elaine ingham and we were exposed to dr elaine ingham uh through a friend we attended a course understood a lot of things about soil food web and it has helped us to identify whether our forest is moving in the direction where we are able to have a robust soil food web you know, naturally uh, uh, occurring. So you see the way it works is we reintroduce the soil microbiology, uh, earthworms are attracted, but what we are not able to introduce artificially is the beetles, is the centipedes, the millipedes. So for us, the biggest learning is that the way nature works is you bring one element and the complementary elements just are attracted because of this one element. So the moment you have fungal networks, let's say, the soil will somehow naturally, automatically get huge amount of microbes, huge amount of bacteria in in the soil. The moment you have leaves fallen, you will suddenly start seeing a lot of centipedes, millipedes you know, crawling on the surface of uh, the forest. Whenever we dig a little bit, we find earthworms. And sooner we are able to see the amphibians, the frogs inside the, in, in, in our soil, the ants come from somewhere, the termites come from somewhere. But at the same time, we have also seen is, if we don't take the initial effort of using the compost tea or g membrane. None of these moving things come to our forest for at least first two years. So I think the soil food web, I think the key to establish that soil food web is to bring at least one element. And for us, soil microbiology, bringing soil microbiology is the best way to kickstart the, the formation of a soil food web in a natural forest.
1: All right, so here's a question. Interesting concept, zero-budget uh, nitrogen farming. And uh, Alicia has a link uh, that leads to the zero-budget nitrogen farming in India, if you can see that in the uh, questions. Uh, so yes, that, sure. that, that's the right
2: link, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll send it, it's actually called zero-budget natural farming. And let me see if the link from FAO is right. But I'll I'll type in the name. So the name is name of the person who initiated it. Subhash uh, sent to all Great. Okay, so I'm did right. you get the answer? Did you get the name of question? I don't know, I just typed in and it vanished, so I don't know. uh Link looks right, uh, but I will share one more link. Previously, it was called zero budget spiritual farming. Now it's called zero budget natural farming because people started connecting spirituality with religion and they said, oh no, this is <laughs> and stuff. So he changed it to zero budget natural farming, but. Uh, let me see if i find a link official
1: one yeah
2: so just one moment i'll show you this link. it's called zbnf palikar zero budget spiritual farming i am sharing it here and there is a a course of 10 different volumes 10 books uh, from one to 10. The first is the philosophy of spiritual farming, then the technique of uh, natural farming like this. I don't know if you can buy those books outside India, but Dr. Palikkar, he conducts one day to 10 days workshops on, on this method. Uh, they are in English and various Indian languages. Uh, I have attended one of those, and I bought a set of books there. And uh, maybe I'll send a copy to Wayne and maybe later you can just, you know, share your uh, summary of the book with uh, people in the U.S. Uh, Because the context changes with geography. Those books are very specific to India, uh, but the principles remain the same. So I think it will be a, a good exploring of uh, using these indian techniques and seeing if they work in the u.s as well u.s and other parts of the world
1: all right so lisha has a comment great work giving soil life uh, or converting dirt into living soil any further thoughts
2: oh yes Uh, and i'm glad you asked this question Uh, sometimes in the u.s i see I, i hear people calling Using the same word "dirt" for soil and dirt, however, uh, in India it's a big difference. For us, uh, the the Indian word for dirt is "dhul," which means dead soil, and uh, soil is called "mitti," and sometimes it's also called as 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 the mother. Uh, so, both are extremely extremely different, and this is a, a, a an understanding I think which we have to. Uh, share with as many people as possible that soil is a a, a living entity. It literally breathes, it uh, exhales, it inhales, it it drinks water, it uh, uh, is very much alive. And just by looking at it, by touching, feeling, smelling it, you can actually... uh, determine whether the soil is alive or not. And this is a feeling which you, and this is purely feeling based, and you develop it when you are working with the nature, uh, planting uh, trees, and it was purely intuitive, uh, purely out of intuition, we realized at one of our projects that we won't be able to grow a forest here successfully, in spite of mixing the cocoa peat, the the manure, and the other materials in the soil, the forest won't grow because the soil doesn't look right, and uh, that was the difference between soil and uh, dirt. It felt like it's dirt. So, giving life back into the soil is 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 something which we have to understand that we have to create those micro environments where the life can be sustained in the soil the good thing about biology the good thing about fauna is that it can move so the day you create that micro environment which can which can provide a habitat to the fauna the the, the microbiology it will naturally come to that particular uh, area it may come with uh, wind it may come with uh, Birds. It may come with uh, some other type of intervention, but it will come. So, keeping uh, the the soil the the micro environment uh, ready for the soil microbiology is the key. And what does any living being wants? They want moisture. They want. uh, They don't want to get burnt in the sun, so they want shade. They want uh, air. So our soil shouldn't be compact, that it's not airy enough. It should be a little bit loosened so that you know air can penetrate into it. It should have some water retention ability, ability so that we have some moisture in the soil. And it shouldn't be directly exposed to sunlight, otherwise the moisture will evaporate. So we cover the soil with thick layer of mulch. Just by making that environment, after five months of our forest even if we don't use the jivamrit or compost tea if we remove the mulch and see under it we see ants we see termites if we take a sample put it under a microscope we see a lot of soil microbiology so this is how you can convert your dirt into soil Uh, and 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 the the booster to this entire process would be if you can artificially introduce a little bit of microbes in this, in this great environment uh, which you have created, the micro environment which you have created. Because then they will have uh, a medium where they can uh, eat and multiply. So they will eat the manure you have mixed and they will multiply uh, with, with using the water which you are uh, watering. And uh, within a few months, you will see that your soil has become uh, a living living entity altogether.
1: Yeah. All right. So here's a couple of comments from Alicia again. Uh she asks, um, great, it sounds like well-balanced forest manages itself in perfect harmony. Um any thoughts? And again, um she has another comment that says little or no management. Uh, sounds like Mark Shepherd's approach. So any comments on that?
2: Yeah, so I heard it from Dr. Miyawaki where he said no management is the best management. Uh, There is a movie called uh, Call of the Forest, a documentary. Let me just... Call of the Forest. Uh, It's a Canadian documentary. It it has featured Dr. Miyawaki. This movie is by Diana Bresville-Kruger. A must watch. And uh, you will see more about Dr. Miyawaki. You will hear more. Dr. Miyawaki's uh, philosophy. I'll check out Mark Shepherd, Uh, sounds like he has things aligned with Dr. Miyawaki's methodology as well. Uh, About the perfect harmony, you see, forest is always evolving and though there is a balance and harmony, but it also wants to change. A deciduous forest wants to become an evergreen forest a forest of pioneer species wants to become a forest of climax forest species so because we plant climax forest species right on day 1 it achieves that balance much faster <clears throat> but let's not expect all the forests to be in that perfect harmony if the forest is still evolving it has if it has still some pioneer species in it like pine Maybe in long term, it will kill some of those pine trees by letting the oaks and the other climax forest species take over these pioneer species and killing them on purpose. Kind of uh, taking the forest to the next level where it becomes uh, a climax forest. So in those cases, you will see that there are mortalities, there are dominations of other species, and uh, that is the case when we have to uh, be more thoughtful about how nature works, because as much nature is about life, it's also about death, and you will see that we should not intervene even those times when we will see that one of the trees of our forest is taking over the other tree by blocking its sunlight and we may have this urge to prune the bigger tree so that you know the other tree can get exposed to the sunlight and that is the time when we have to suppress that urge or understand that the natural ecosystem understands much better than the human brain so let it take over rather than going and interfering it and creating a disbalance in the natural succession so when it comes to no management is the best management we have to really hold our horses uh, many times
0: i'm going to skip ahead here because alicia you've got lots of really cool questions but let's make sure we get a couple other folks
2: um danielle
0: has one in here which is really kind of cool I might have a different answer than what yours would be, Shubhendra, because I know this area a little bit, but it's, I have been conflicted about planting a forest where I live because naturally it is a prairie grassland. I am now resolved to go ahead and plant the forest. However, to plant native trees is not authentic because trees, to my knowledge, are not native here in abundance. This is in the foothills of Northern Colorado, which by the way, that's where I live also, Danielle, um, in the foothills of Northern Colorado. Um, are not native, here in abundance. This is the footage. okay. Uh, what is your opinion on this?
2: Yes, so a great question. And if you remember the slide, the first primary succession we saw, if it's still grass, the, the place is still evolving. And we have to just find out whether you are in the secondary succession stage of that place or the primary succession. If it's primary succession, don't plant the trees because the soil has not deepened enough to sustain trees naturally on that particular place. And grasses, grasslands, are as important and of an ecosystem as forests. So much of fauna, mammals, are totally dependent on, on these grasslands. And uh, changing it into a forest will be unnatural, will also result in extension of all, all that uh, fauna. So, let's not play with it. however, if it is a secondary if it's if it is a grassland under secondary succession means historically there would have been a forest, the forest was destroyed, and now nature is trying to recover and it has reached the stage of grasses. That's where you can identify the climax forest species and plant a forest and take a huge leap in the secondary succession and bring back a lost forest which will anyways reoccur maybe in 150 to 200 years but from your question and from your knowledge it looks like your place is still under primary succession and uh, grasses is the natural uh, vegetation of that particular place so let's not change it if you are planting something plant grasses awesome well it is now those 20 minutes and i want to be really
0: respectful we're going to end with one more here it's one that chad had and by the way, if you've got a question in here that didn't get answered, we'll try to connect with Andrew, and I would guess that he'll give us an answer in writing or whatever, and we'll post it on the site with the replay. So here's the last one of the day, um, which is, does plant spacing with location, or is the three, oh, excuse me, he, um, yeah, does plant spacing with location, or is the three to five plants per square meter used everywhere? I am specifically referring to Northern California where fire is a big consideration.
2: Yes, so uh, contrary to popular opinion that we have to plant trees far away from each other because they can, then then if a tree is on fire, that the fire won't be transferred to the other tree. We have to pack them close together because when they're packed close together, like a natural forest, they have a lot of moisture in it. They are less prone to fire and uh, the wind velocity the the wind can uh, can can uh, flow with a great velocity and volume if the trees are spaced out and for forests to burn they need a lot of oxygen at that time for that fire to grow and if the trees are spaced out the forest fire grows much rapidly compared to if they are packed close to each other second thing is when we plant a tiny forest, when we plant a forest on day one, when plants are small, if they're packed close to each other, the, the disturbance by the wind will be less. If they're far away from each other, they will get more disturbance. So in coastal areas where it's highly windy, we plant a density of five trees per square meter. In inland areas where there is less wind and more stable uh, climate, we plant as less as 3.2, 3.4 trees per square meter. In one project of Dr. Miyawaki, they have planted nine seedlings per square meter. However, the mortality is a little bit higher compared to when you plant around five, but from the outside the forests which are planted at a higher density have much better survival rate much better uh, density and what we have also seen is the trees support each other very well so when you have mix of different species planted close to each other they will be fixing different types of uh, nutrients in the soil they'll be bringing more diversity of fauna to the soil, making the forest more complex. So planting close to each other is, has huge benefits, and depending on the wind of that particular place, at that particular place, uh, we can decide the density. Higher the wind, higher should be the density. Higher the heat, higher should be the density. So in arid places, we plant trees close to each other, But in arid places, there will be more shrubs and just a few trees. Because that's the natural habitat, that's the natural distribution of the vegetation of that particular place. So maybe when we will have our video manuals available, I'll share some examples of uh, different types of forest surveys. We'll go and survey a forest, which is more shrubs and less trees. And you will see that it will make a perfect sense to have one tree surrounded by hundreds of shrubs in a deserted place because all those shrubs are going to retain enough moisture in the soil that they can sustain a bigger tree it's a beautiful way a dense ecosystem in a desert uh, supports some of these giant trees so there is a lot more to study and explore in this field and i'm so glad that uh, we could spend this one one and a half hour together and uh, I, I, looking at the questions, I learned a lot and I also understood how, uh, how what, what kind of curiosity the presentation sparks. And I will try to have more and more slides in my future presentations, uh, which would answer these questions in advance so that we can explore uh, much, much higher grounds. Thank you so much for uh, your time and listening to me
0: thank you thank you so much we are on the on webinars the way we applaud is by putting ones in would all of you if you like this put some ones in start to applause i'm going to applause here but with my hands and, and my uh, speakerphone please everybody remember the kickstarter and we'll talk more about that but also go and watch the first webinar that Shubhinder did with us, because I listened to it, watched all of it today, and there were some things that he repeated, but there were some other things that he talked about that were not what he talked about today. So, um, you can get more knowledge, and going back to that,
2: and um,
0: I'm just going to end with what, uh, what Danielle said here. Thank you so much for hosting this, and for uh, for immensely for your work, and a whole bunch of people are putting ones in here. Um, and she then says, "I look forward to contributing my part to a healthier planet, and to seeing what grand work you are able to accomplish. I am most hopeful." So, let's just end it with that. Mark, do you have anything else you want to have before you before we go out?
1: Awesome. Um, yeah, that was that was really inspiring, and um, I'm sure um, everybody learned a lot. And uh, we hope. Uh, that you'll be back um we'd we'll love to have you come back and do another session with us and uh yep thanks a lot
2: Definitely. and door yes
1: there will be a
0: replay um it takes mark 48 hours or so to get it up and then once right. it's up It'll there it's absolutely there for you to be able to watch and um we we always i think we told you this before so you but if you want any of this we'll get you copies of the replay you, so you can use it in any way you want for any of your material. So. Yep. Um, thanks everybody it has been great. We've got two more webinars this week. Aja is going to be with us on Wednesday and then we have our Q&A with everything we do on Friday. Next week we've got some live things going. We're going to get back to where we're doing 10 hours a week or so of live webinars. So Hang on and follow us to the moon and let's take this guy to his goals with our Kickstarter help.
2: Bye-bye, everybody.
0: Uh, Bye, Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the Eat Community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the Eat Community podcast.